Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Here's the word of God. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thus says the Lord. Friends, today we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Romans. And today we're going to be starting chapter 10. And if you've been with us for the past three weeks or so, uh, you know that we just got done talking about Romans chapter 8 and 9. And you've also uh, would have heard from these chapters, Paul talking a lot about a particular doctrine that I know has been pretty controversial for, for a while now. And that is a doctrine of predestination or also called the doctrine of election. This, this doctrine says that God is in complete control over people's salvation. Not only was he in complete control in providing the way for people to be saved, namely through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as our Lord and Savior, but this doctrine says that God is also in complete control over whether or not we would actually receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And Again, I completely understand why some people would feel reactive against this doctrine. And look, much about your concerns are, are valid because there could be potentially many, many dangerous implications that could be birthed out of this doctrine. And one of those dangerous implications, Paul actually talks about in our passage today. Many are, are rightly concerned that if the doctrine of predestination or election is true, it would produce lazy Christians who feel no urgency or, or no passion at all for other people's salvation, right? If God has full control over it anyways, then why pray for people's salvation at all? Why share the gospel to anyone at all? And that's a valid concern. But, but here's what I want us to notice from, from verse 1. Paul, who just got done teaching about election and predestination for a whole two chapters before this, now, in the very first verse of chapter 10, he tells people to pray for the people's salvation. Isn't that interesting? Look at what Paul says here in verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You hear that? Paul, who for the past two chapters have been explicitly telling us that God is in absolute control over people's salvation, yet desires in his heart and prays to God for other people to be saved. See, the doctrine of election and predestination didn't make him passive at all about other people's salvation. And some of us may be seeing this and we're thinking to ourselves, well, that's a little weird. You know, if Paul believes God has full control over people's salvation, then why pray for other people's salvation at all? Why share the gospel to other people at all? Well, let me flip that question around. Why would you pray to God for other people's salvation if you believe that he actually doesn't have full control over it? Wouldn't that actually be what's a little bit off? That, that's like you asking me to do something you know I can't do or rather choose not to do. Why would you even ask if you don't think I have the power over the outcome? Wouldn't my response then just be, sorry, can't interfere? If you've ever prayed for someone else to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, that means deep inside you realize God can 
and does interfere, or else you wouldn't have prayed at all. The knowledge that God is in control over people's salvation, far from making you pray for people's salvation and share the gospel less, it actually makes you pray for people's salvation and share the gospel more, even to those whom others have long given up on. Because you know that there's no place too dark or person too far from God to bestow his saving power unto. And that's exactly what our passage is about today. Because there is no place too dark or person too far from God's love, Paul is telling the Christians here in, in Rome to pray and share the gospel to others. But to who specifically? Well, let's take a look at verse 1 one more time. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Who is they? Who is the them that Paul is talking about here in verse 1? Well, they are the Jewish non-Christians that Paul just got done rebuking at the end of chapter 9. That's the them Paul is referring to. In other words, Paul saying to these Roman Christians, do you see these very, very, very religious people who know the Bible really well, who don't think they need a savior because they think that their obedience to God's law is enough? I want you to share the gospel with those people. And in this passage, we see how we can do that how we can effectively share the gospel to people, perhaps who are very, very religious, people who are spiritually or morally confident of themselves to where they don't see their need for a savior. What do we do? Well, we see at least three things that we must do. One is first, we gotta deal with our own pride. And two, we have to show them the danger of uninformed zeal and three, we got to point them to where rest can be found, okay? So we must deal with our own pride. We got to show them the danger of uninformed zeal, and we got to point them to where rest can be found. Let's start with our first point in verse one. If you want to effectively share the gospel with those who are very religious and self-sufficient, we you have to first deal with your own pride. I got to deal with my own pride, okay? Now I want to go back here to verse one again in our first point. We, we can't skip over it too quickly. Notice how Paul felt here toward these legalistic religious zealots. Paul says, my heart's desire is that they may be saved. This is another way of saying, my bones are crying out. When, when I think of them, my, my chest pounds with longing for them to be saved, for them to become my brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and I wonder if what Paul felt here in verse 1 is what you and I often feel towards the religious zealots of our day. Just take some time right now to think about the most legalistic, religious, presumptuously self-sufficient, Christ-rejecting person or group of people in our day. Maybe it's someone you know today. Maybe it's someone who's hurt you in the past. And notice how your body reacts when their faces enter into your mind and when their words echo into your ears. I'm assuming heartwarming affection and love isn't what we're feeling. And of course not, because these people don't feel safe. And by the way, these Jewish non-Christians that Paul is praying for here are also the very same people who persecuted him, who stoned him, who imprisoned him, and even excommunicated him from their community. Remember, Paul was one of them. He was a leader of the Pharisees. Paul grew up with these people. He had relationships with these people. He had good memories with these people. 
but they chased him away. They threw him out. They mocked him after he became a Christian. In other words, these people left scars not only on Paul's physical body, but also deep in his heart. I doubt they felt super safe to Paul either. But yet, he didn't cancel them out. In verse 1, he's praying for them, and he's loving them. See, when I cancel out prideful religious zealots from my list of people to care and love for, that's, that's very ironic. Because what's happening there is that in my pride, I've excluded these people for being too prideful for me. So the very first thing we've got to do, if we want to be an effective gospel witness towards religious zealots who think their obedience can get them to heaven without needing a savior, as these Jews, Jewish non-Christians were in Paul's day, who, by the way, constitutes the majority of people in our culture today, not Jewish uh, non-Christians, but people who, who feel like their obedience and their uh, of faithfulness to God is enough to earn them salvation. If we want to be effective gospel witness to these people, the, the first thing we got to do is we got to repent from our own pride by realizing that we're just as prideful as them. And the only reason of why we're saved is not because we're more humble or more self-aware, but it's because God in his sovereign power reached down to the darkest corners of the earth and found you and found me. So when we see that, and we see other people who are in the same dark corner we're in, we should be moved by compassion for them in our hearts. As Paul was saying here in verse one, we should beg God and pray to God for their salvation and share the gospel to them. How? Well, that's what the next few verses show us. I wanna to point to two things we see here in our passage about how to share the gospel to religious zealots who feel morally and spiritually self-sufficient to where they don't need or see their need for the gospel, okay? The first thing you wanna do, which is our second point, is you wanna show them just how dangerous their uninformed zeal is. Look at verse two. Paul says, for I bear witness that they have zeal for God. So first, notice here, Paul acknowledges they're zealous for God. And look, that in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, they, they pray a lot, they, they fast a lot, they meditate a lot, they make sacrificial decisions for God a lot. And it's okay to affirm that zeal for God in itself isn't a bad thing. The gospel doesn't kill one's zeal for God, it informs it. And if your zeal for God is not informed by the gospel message, that can actually be very dangerous. How? In two ways. First, it's dangerous to have zeal for God, not based on the gospel, Paul says in verse three, because all of our zeal for God, therefore, will become an attempt to establish our own righteousness. See, if we don't believe that Christ has given us righteousness, we therefore obey God to establish our own righteousness. Now, why is this so dangerous? Well, because your whole life will end up being driven by a lack. What do I mean? Let me explain. Think about what's assumed here. If you feel the need to establish your own righteousness, that means you feel that your righteousness is not yet established, right? That there's still a standard that is unmet. So therefore, you feel the need to establish yourself and then meet that standard. So what's driving you to obey God 
is the lack of righteousness that you feel has not yet been established. You're driven, therefore, by a sense of lack. So you work and you work and you work and you pray and you pray and you fast and you do all kinds of religious things to establish your own righteousness and cover up that lack. And that is so dangerous. Because what's driving you to obey God is the lack of righteousness that you feel. And you'll be doing all these religious things to run away from a lack, to fill up an empty space that still needs filling rather than to worship God. And after a while, you'll find yourself not being able to tell whether you're doing all this because God, you want to glorify God, or if you're doing all this to fill up a sense of lack in your own heart. And that's dangerous for your heart. That's dangerous for your worship, your obedience to God. And, and if enough people think that way, that's really dangerous for the community as well. Because if righteousness is self-earned based on each individual's personal ability to obey God, all of a sudden what you're going to start seeing is your community is going to start developing spiritual caste systems, right? For those who are more obedient, they're going to be considered as like the spiritual VIPs, and they're going to get all the attention and all the praise. And others who are struggling to obey God will start to feel invisible and, and neglected. But, but on top of all that, the reason why attempting to self-establish our own righteousness is dangerous is ultimately, Paul says here, because it insults God. How so? Let's continue the verse 3. Seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now think about that. The only reason why anyone would even begin the journey of seeking personal righteousness by our own efforts is because we believe that at some point, we can, on our own, reach God's standard of righteousness, to reach God's righteousness, right? If you don't believe you could ever do that, then why even start the journey in the first place? But, but now think about what we're saying there about God's righteousness. If we think that God's righteousness is achievable by the efforts of mere mortals like us, that must therefore mean that God's standard must not be very high at all, right? When I, uh, when I played tennis in college, I was under the delusion that I was better than I actually was. So I thought to myself, you know what? Uh, I'm going to email University of Georgia, which at the time was a top five college tennis programs uh, during that day. And I'll play for them for three years, and then I'm going to go pro. Who knows, right? And uh, after my friend in Georgia, who was going to send my tennis video for me to University of Georgia, saw the video that I was planning on sending and saw my tennis matches, she responded and said, look, Tez, I, I can't send this man. <laughs> if you want to send it yourself, you can. But if I send it, they may think that I'm insulting them. <laughs> because you're just not as good as you think you are. <laughs> and that was hard to hear. But she's right, you know, because after applying to many places, I didn't even play first spot for a school that was ranked 70 in the country. See, my, my zeal was therefore uninformed. I thought too highly of myself, and I thought too lowly of the University of Georgia's tennis program. In the same way, if we think that we can somehow establish our own righteousness, and it's enough to reach God's standard of righteousness. Paul is saying here, we're thinking way too highly of ourselves. And at the same time, grossly underestimating God's righteousness. We're not submitting to it. And that's insulting. 
Seeking to establish our own righteousness is dangerous because it makes lack the driving factor behind our obedience. It produces pride, comparison in the community, and it insults God's standard of righteousness. And this is what you want to reveal to those who think that their religiosity can somehow save them. This is what we have to show them, driven by love. Show them how something that at face value may seem very zealous and, and religious and good is actually very dangerous. And if you're worried that saying all this might upset them, then good, you should be worried. And I'm glad you're worried about that. That's telling me that you're sensitive about that. But I believe if like Paul in verse one, you're doing it out of a heart's desire for them, truly. And if like Paul in verse one, you're doing it after having immersed yourself in prayer for them. And if you've done the hard work of admitting and dealing with your own pride first, I really do believe your approach will be much more humble, gentle, authentic, and loving. Don't approach the conversation with the attitude of wanting to win an argument. Approach the person driven by a heart full of love, having first bathed in prayer like Paul did. All right. Now what we see in verse 4, in our last verse of, of our text today, that if you want to reach these people who feel self-sufficient morally and spiritually, you have to do more than just identify what the problem is, which is what Paul did in verses 2 to 3 you also have to show them the solution. You have to tell them that if they can't fulfill this zeal for righteousness by establishing it themselves, how then can they fulfill it? That brings us to our last point, where rest can be found. Verse 4, Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, it's really important for us to understand that when Paul says Christ is the end of the law, the word end here doesn't mean end as in like God's law has, has ended and it now has no more purpose for us, for us today, okay? The word end here uh, in the Greek is actually the word telos. And the meaning of the word telos translated to end here in our English versions is less like saying the movie has ended or, you know, our meeting today has ended. It's less like that. And it's more like, for example, a father saying that the end goal for his day job is so that he can provide for his family. What he's saying there is that the desired result, uh, the, the beautiful desired end of his work is so that his family can be provided for. That's the telos, that's the beautiful desired result. That's why he gets up in the morning to work in the first place. Or like a man who made a long trip to surprise someone they love. And they get there and they say, the end goal of my journey is to show you just how much I love you. That doesn't mean that his trip has now ended and he's going to go back home. He's just saying that the, the, the desired result, the beautiful purpose of this trip since the very beginning was to express just how much he loved her. And Paul's saying here in verse 4, Jesus Christ is the telos, the end the beautiful purpose of why the law was given in the first place. And now that Christ has come, Paul isn't saying, you know, throw the Ten Commandments out the window. All he's saying is that God's purpose is complete. The beautiful end, the desired result of why God gave the law in the first place has arrived. Have you um, ever felt the temptation 
to avoid reading parts of the Bible where God demands us to morally uphold a particular standard? Have we ever felt uneasy about the things God says in the Ten Commandments and been made aware of your inability to achieve them? Have we ever felt reactive and a little bit defensive when the Bible reveals the kind of punishments that we deserve for not being able to obey God's commands? If you have felt those things, then the law of God is doing what it's supposed to be doing in your heart. It's supposed to, in a way, make you feel like that. Why? So that when you reach the end and you realize you can't do it, there in the end, you'll see Jesus on a cross saying, this was the plan all along. The law, a big part of the use of the law is always to make you feel and understand just how incompetent you are. And I've always meant to die for you, to give you what you could never earn. This was the plan all along. And when you get to that end, you know what will happen? All of a sudden, you will no longer be doing religious things in order to fill up a lack or a void or to establish something that isn't yet fully established. But you'll be doing it out of the fullness of Christ flooding out of your hearts. Your community all of a sudden will begin to slowly heal and find less of a need to play the comparison game. The world all of a sudden will stop being this huge courtroom where you find yourself constantly being the defendant. But it'll always be what it's meant to be, a huge stage where you watch God slowly unfolding his love for you, beginning from the day the law first came to the day Christ was nailed to a cross. You see, in Christ, you're no longer cemented to your track record. And you have a hope that goes way beyond your personal ability to obey God's laws. If you're listening to this today and you find yourself to be a Christian who's highly allergic to religious zealots, and I, I struggle with this too, my prayer is that God would show us just how similar we are to them. We're prideful too. And that if you come to think about it, we're zealots too, you know? We intensely hunger and thirst for righteousness too, do we not? And the only reason why we're not living with the same frantic angst as they are is because we know that Christ has sufficiently provided for whatever righteousness we still lack. And now our zeal is birthed out of an overflow of fullness rather than by the guilt of lack. So if this is you, would you join me in doing the hard work of, of growing in empathy for them? Would you pray for their salvation? And would you seek them out with the gospel as God has done for you? But you may be here listening to this today, and in a weird way, you kind of actually find yourself relating a little bit to the religious zealot, <laughs> and, and, and you do feel this, this boiling zeal to please God. But yet also you feel that no matter how hard you try, you just can't shake off the lack, you know? So, so you run, and you run, and you run, and after a while, you begin to wonder that perhaps your spiritual life has become more about running away from something rather than running towards God. 
but you keep running, even though deep inside you feel like there is no end in sight. Hear what God is trying to tell you today from his word. The end, the telos to your marathon has come. And you really can rest. His name is Jesus. And he's offering you that thing you've been panting for your whole life. A sense of being right with the one who created you. And when you receive him, your race won't end. Your running won't end. You'll just no longer be running alone away from something. You'll begin to run with Jesus towards the Father. Will you believe? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we have a zeal for righteousness. Everyone does, whether we acknowledge it or not. We want to be right. We want to not be broken, to have no flaw um, impact our souls. But yet we try to clean ourselves up and it just never ends. Here you've given us the end, the telos, the fulfillment and that is Christ. I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who are tired of running alone, away from something, that you would show them the end, that you would reveal to them the gospel of Christ and the cross in which he has died upon, and that they would receive this gift of righteousness, and that they would not reject it under the basis of it's too good to be true, you are good and you are true. Now I pray, Father, for those of us who may understand the gospel and, and are Christians and have received Christ, but we have a strong reaction against those uh, who are religious zealots who reject Christ. I pray that you would help us repent from our pride so that we would also love them and care for them and preach the gospel to those who we may have checked off our list because you are sovereign over salvation. No one should be checked off the list. We should pray for all and do our best to reach all. Have mercy upon us, Father. Let your spirit do things in people's hearts that my words uh, would never be able to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.